0: Very cool. Just found out that Annie knew Andrea in and faith because when Annie was working up at Waynesville as a nurse, she was nursing, not nursing, she was a nurse for their little girls. And so that's just a small world when you see something like that. It's very, very cool. Well, if you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse by verse study to the gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 22 this morning we're going to be looking at verses 15 through verse 22. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. We read, Matthew records for us, then the Pharisees. Once plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they'd heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The title of my message this morning is, whose image do you bear? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word, knowing, Lord God, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, just for open ears to receive all that you have for us today. We thank you for your word, for how powerful it is, Lord, that you use it to change our lives through your Holy Spirit. So have your way in our hearts this morning, we pray. Teach us, instruct us, exhort us, convict us where necessary, Lord. Change us is what we're asking. Lord, draw us closer to our relationship with you. And finally, Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't have a relationship with you, we pray, Father, that you would especially touch their heart and their life today and they would see their need for repentance and come to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Story of a man who was on vacation, strolling along his hotel outside in Acapulco, just enjoying the sunny Mexico weather there, and suddenly he was attracted by the screams of a woman kneeling in front of a child. The man knew enough Spanish to determine that the child had swallowed a coin, and seizing the young child by the heels, the man held him upside down, gave him a few shakes, and a quarter dropped out to the sidewalk. Oh, thank you, sir, cried the woman. You seem to know just how to get it out of him. Are you a doctor? No, ma'am, replied the man. I'm with the IRS. (laughs) You know, here we we hear an awful lot about taxes and to pay or not to pay taxes. That is the question. But here in verse 17, that was the question asked Jesus. Therefore, tell us, what do you think is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus answers so wonderfully the most famous proverbial saying in all of history, quoted and misquoted uh, many times over the years. Verse 21, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And that's our two points, if you're taking notes this morning, that we're going to look at. Number one, rendering to Caesar, and number two, rendering to God. Number one, Rendering to Caesar. What does that mean? Let's get a little background first before we hit that. In our last study together, we pointed out how this was the last week before the cross. Jesus was on his way to die for the sins of the world. And we read three parables that Jesus gave in which he described the failures of the Jewish leaders to accept him and believe on him as their Messiah. And because they rejected him, they rejected God. But now here, starting in, really, verse 15 in Matthew 22, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and some of these religious rulers, they decide to counterattack, to come against Jesus with a series of political and ethical and, and theological and even personal questions for Jesus. Why? Well, unknowingly, they were actually fulfilling a prophecy of Exodus chapter 12, which says that before the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed, It was to be inspected and observed for five days in order to make sure that there was no spot or blemish or disease in the Lamb. So too, before our Passover Lamb of God was sacrificed on the cross, He underwent a period of scrutiny and examination by the brutal inspectors of all, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Herodians, His enemies. Look now at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Now the Pharisees, they were the religious conservatives of the day. They were very legalistic in that they tried to keep the very letter of the law of God perfectly. Yet we know that they were marked by pride and self-righteousness. The Pharisees were also very... Uh, nationalistic in their political views. They hated being under the Roman rule and wanted to be free from it. Now on the other side you had the Herodians. Now the Herodians were the political party of the Jews who were supporters of King Herod. They really enjoyed the benefits from being under the authority of Rome and, and they they liked that, the complete opposite of the Pharisees. So you have two groups that really are, are, are far apart on, on what they believe. And, and in any other circumstance, these two groups would have nothing to do with each other. They hated each other. But not in this situation. You now it always amazes me how two opposite powers can bind people together. We know that the love is a binding force. And as Christians, the bond of love should unite us. But on the other hand, hate is also a binding force. It's a force that's fragmenting, it's destructive. I've seen love uh, unite people for the common good, and I've seen hate you know, unite people in the quest to destroy others. The church, we as God's people, should be united in the bond of love. In fact, we're told in John thirteen thirty five, Jesus says, By this all men will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. On the other hand, it shouldn't surprise us that we are hated and, and despised for living for Christ. I mean, what should we expect coming from a non-believer? It shouldn't surprise us. Non-believers are going to act like non-believers. And there are groups that from time to time hate each other, but they will come together to often attack the things of Christianity, the things of God. And these men were brought together in their common hatred for the Lord and, and who, you know, they looked at Jesus as being a threat to their way of life. And in verse 15 it says that they came together and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. That word "entangle" there means to be entrapped, or it, it, it means a hunting or a setting of a trap to catch one's prey. They thought that they could actually you know, cause Jesus to make a mistake, to trap him with his words. problem was they didn't know who they were dealing with. I mean, could you imagine trying to outsmart Jesus? I mean, we even, you know, I think we, we, can, we can maybe do that even as Christians. We think we can outsmart Jesus. Perhaps it's something that you know that is wrong, but you find some way to say, well, it's okay, Jesus isn't going to care, it's going to be all right, just this one time. But Jesus sees it all, he knows it all. I remember years ago, before I was saved, I had to clarify that, I was in high school, and not hanging out with my buddies, and and uh one of my buddies called up and said, hey Tom, let's let's go for a ride. Let's, let's, I said, all right, well, let's go. So we get in this old beat up, we call it the Bomba. It was an old, like Nova thing, but just junk. A, a but, but we get in his car, and we're going up to the, where the mountains are there, and and where I lived, it's a place called Little Creek. And you take this—a winding road. I mean, it was just crazy, winding, and you get up to the top of the where, where the creek is out and stuff. And so I get in the car with him and my other buddy, and, and uh, he just goes crazy. I don't know if he was trying to kill us all or what, but he's going like eighty, ninety miles per hour in these one. I think my life is over. I'm going to die. This is it. You know, and 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 so I get home about one o'clock in the morning, and I and I walk in, I open the door, and and there my mom is, and she's sitting in that chair, and she's got the little lamp on her table that's right there, and she's got her Bible on her lap, and she's sitting there. And she says, "So where were you?" Well, I, I was at the coffee shop. We had a Mr. Baker's coffee shop that was open to two in the morning, and it was one in the morning. And she says, "No, you aren't. I was there." Well, I was over Danny's house, the buddy that drove. No, no, I would call Danny's house and his mom said that you weren't there. Well, that's because we went to Al's house. No, I was at the coffee shop with Al's mom and Al's mom said you weren't at Al's house. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Mom. I was out. I thought I was going to die and that Danny was driving crazy. And I, uh, my point is, Mom knew. And I don't know why she always knew. I don't know what it is with moms. They, they just know and she's sitting there and she got the Bible on, on her lap and I just felt horrible. But to it the same way. The Lord knows. He knows exactly what's going on in her life. You can't hide anything from the Lord. You can't make excuses to the Lord. You can't outsmart Him. He always knows. And sometimes, I think we can, you know, we, we think we can. Well, I'm just going to twist God's Word a little bit just to get what I want. I mean, after all, doesn't it say in Mark 11:24, 24, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. Oh, I I want this thing right now, Lord, and your Word says it's mine, so I'm asking, I'm going to receive it. Yeah, but what about James 4, 3? You ask and do not receive because you ask a message, you may spend it on your pleasure, what about 1 John 5.14, that if you ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Well, Lord, I don't know about that part of the verse, but I, but this is what I'm, I'm really... Don't twist it. okay? Don't twist it. It's just one thing to search the Scriptures for the truth. It's another to work tirelessly to blend the Scriptures to fulfill whatever selfish desires we have. But the bottom line is you can't outsmart God. You just can't. And it's really, I think, a tragedy like what we see here, when people conspire, when they get together to trap others so they can attack them. And it happens way too often in our world today. You hear these little sound bites from things that people have said and you're not really getting the whole conversation and the fake news will then manipulate the phrases to get people to say whatever they want them to say. And before you know people have formed opinions off of half-truths or half-stories. And that's what they're trying to do with Jesus. I mean, the fact... You know, even after he was arrested. Do you remember why he was arrested? They said, well, because he said he was going to destroy the temple. Well, he was speaking of his body. But they twisted his words. Now, this brings us to how they start to accomplish their plan to trap Jesus. They figured they would do it through flattery. Look at verse 16. You have these Pharisees and you have the Herodians coming to Jesus and they say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. I mean, they're just, you no know, flattering Jesus. Let us tell something about you, Jesus, about, about, you know, what, 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 how good you are. We know that you are true. We know that you teach the way of God truth. and truth. I think there's probably a little bit of sarcasm in their, their, their voices there. You know, they certainly didn't believe it. In fact, that might have worked on some ordinary man, but again, you can't, Fool God. You can't fool Jesus. He saw right through their hypocrisy. In fact, he says so. Look at verse 18. He says, But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? That's a scene I would love to see. They're all standing there, they're smug looking their faces and, Oh, you yeah, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Like, you guys are, you're foolish. I mean, for you and I, it doesn't really take much to see that they're just trying to butter them up with flattery and, and, you know, that, Even though what they said was true, they didn't believe a word of it. Yes, he's teaching the way of truth. And yes, he does not care for the person of any man. That is, he's not a respecter of persons. But it's all flattery. Someone has described flattery as the reverse mirrored image of gossip. Gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. And flattery is what you say to a person's face if you would never say behind a person's back. Now flattery has brought a lot of damage to people's lives. The Bible says in Proverbs twenty six twenty eight that a flattering mouth works ruin. Or of the wicked, Psalm 5, verse 9 says, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth, their inward part is destruction, their throat is an open tomb, they flatter with their tongue. At best, flattery can be a form of lying. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue. Psalm 78, verse 36 says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feast. Proverbs 29, 5. I think of the classic example of old Samson, you know, in the Old Testament. where the, What all the armies of the Philistines couldn't do, a flattering woman did. And to make it worse, her name was Delilah. I mean, you, you got that there. Oh, Samson, you're so strong. And she maybe grabbed his bicep and said, oh, yeah. I am strong, aren't I? Oh, Samson, you're so handsome. Yes, I am handsome. And she starts flattering him with his words and she's just, he's just soaking it all in. That's right, baby. I'm I'm a pretty good looking guy. And she says, Sammy, what's the secret of your strength? And Samson just melted in her hand. Oh, this is my hair. It brought Samson to ruin, to destruction. Beware of flattering lips that are spreading a net for your feet. Well, with their sarcastic flattery out of the way, these religious rulers get to the real reason for their visit. They ask Jesus about paying taxes. And again, look at verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I mean, that's what they were getting to. They're trying to get Jesus you know, caught up in the horns of a dilemma. And you, you can't get Jesus in the horns of a dilemma. It's Jesus. But but their thinking was, if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes, by all means pay them, then everyone will turn against him because they hated Rome and they hated paying the tax. But if Jesus said, no, don't pay taxes, then they would report him to the Roman government and the Romans would have had it arrested. So that from a human perspective, I mean, they think Jesus is caught. And if he says, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question, then everyone would give up on him. So he had to answer it. And it certainly looks as though he couldn't answer it in a way without being tricked. Yet Jesus, man, he knows their hearts. He knew there was nothing, they were nothing more than hypocrites. And in fact, he he knew they had no respect for him. They wanted him dead. And, And so knowing their intentions, he confronts them. And he challenges them. In verse 19, he's saying, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Now, I find that interesting. I mean, don't you find it interesting that Jesus didn't even have a coin for this illustration? He didn't reach into his poverty. Here, take a look at this denarius. He didn't didn't have anything. I mean, some of today's health and wealth prosperity teachers would have quite a problem with that. I mean, Jesus to them would be one that lacks faith. Jesus said in Luke 9, 58, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus says, well, show me. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Now here's a picture of a denarius. and take a look at it on the screen. Same looking coin that would have been handed to Jesus. It uh, would have held in his hand. Something just like this. Now one side of the denarius was the bust of Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The other side read, Pontifex Maximus, or Latin for chief priest very offensive to the chief priest, the Jewish chief chief priest, and and there's no doubt the coin was dedicated to a pagan emperor. Now to the Jews, this was blasphemy. This was a sacrilege. They hated the idea of taking this coin that basically said Caesar is a god and paying taxes with it. And what made it even worse, the tax they were paying was just a tax for being alive. That's it. Right, here's a tax just for being alive. All women when they turned the age of 12 and men when they turned the age of 13 had to pay a tax to the Roman government just for being an adult. One denarius. Now, a denarius was a day's wage. So they hated to pay this tax. But because they were under Roman authority, because it had Caesar's image on the coin, the money belonged to Caesar. It was government money. And, and you know, I'm sure when Jesus took that coin maybe held it, kind of looked at it and lifted it up a little bit. Everyone was just waiting with great anticipation. What's he going to say? What's he going to do with it? I mean, the the Pharisees and the Herodians were probably smirking. Yeah, we got him now, you know, we got him. And I'm sure it got real quiet that if there wasn't a dirt floor, you could probably hear a pin drop. But, But Jesus takes the coin and he asks them this question in verse 20. Whose image and inscription is this? And they're obligated to answer him. I mean, he's turned the tables on them. And so in verse 21, they say to him, Caesars! And then Jesus makes this most profound statement in all of history that has never ever been made. Verse 21, And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. And that one statement, it has formed our foundation as Christians for our relationship to the state and our relationship to God. I like what commentator Ken Hughes writes. He says this, The statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but it is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. It was decisive and determinative in shaping Western civilization. So Jesus took a trick question and turned it into a blueprint for civilization. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he says. See, Jesus wasn't just talking about taxes here, though. Because the word he uses there is things in verse 21. He took it to a higher level of responsibility. Not just money, but your responsibilities, your roles, your rights, your citizens of having really living as citizens of an earthly government. See, we as Christians, we hold a dual citizenship. Citizenship. We are first and foremost a citizen of heaven. But you're also a citizen citizen of the country here, depending on where you you live. Here in the United States, we're we're citizens of the United States. That means as citizens of heaven, as Christians, we have a responsibility to respect and obey the governing authorities and government rules in in, in the countries that that we live in. I mean, if I, as a U.S. citizen, go and visit Russia, for example, I had better respect their rules and their authorities there. Otherwise, I may find myself... In big trouble. In the same way, as citizens of heaven, it means that we as Christians must honor and obey government authorities and government rulers and civil authorities here in the United States. We're to be law-abiding citizens. Now, I do believe, especially as we see the political scene heating up, that God wants us as Christians to be well-informed as our role as Christians when it comes to our government. No better place to understand that than Romans 13. And I think we've studied this before, but if you know Romans 13, you know. Let me read it to you. Verse 1 says that every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now you might say, well, you know, Paul didn't really know the government we have today. I mean, uh, and we, we have a different political climate nowadays, and, and I don't know if Paul would have said the same thing. Listen, Paul was a part in Rome when Caesar Nero was in charge. When Caesar Nero was on the throne. And let me tell you, he hated Christians. I mean, he would soon begin the persecution of putting Christians to death. He was a horrible, horrible man. But the principle here that God has established human government as a divine ordained institution. Yet because of sin, you know, man has corrupted it. But even a corrupt government is better than no government at all. Paul goes on in Romans 13, verses 2 and 3, that says this, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. Now, some of you may remember, you know, if you're as old as I am, from the days before you were saved, and you're living with, you know, maybe some pretty worldly and wild ways. Now, whenever you saw a policeman... I mean, you were like, you know, your heart was starting to beat really, really fast. And you get a little bit of paranoia set in. And, oh, there's a cop behind us. Maintain. I am maintaining, dude. No, you maintain. Oh, man, okay. Okay, keep going straight. Keep going straight. Okay, Don't look. Oh, he's gone. And you'd relax a little bit. You know, one of the first things you notice when you become a Christian is that that paranoia is gone. You don't have that fear anymore. Hopefully, because you've changed. I mean... <laughs> You're now doing those things that are that are good. And those in authority now, as Paul says there, that in verse 4, free is God's minister to you for good. Listen, the next time a policeman is writing you a ticket, you can tell him, you are a minister of God for good. You keep me from speeding, from breaking the law, and killing other people. Thank you, officer. Now, he may pull you out of the car and think you're drunk, but you can say that to him. But see, Paul in verse 4 says, if you're breaking the law, but if you do evil, he says, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Listen, I thank God for our police department. But man, we need to be praying for them because of the, the, the climate that we live in today. Man, it is, is, is tough. And, and I just hear of these officers that have been shot lately. I hear murdered and suicide in the police force. We need to be praying for these folks. Paul goes on in verse 5-7 through of Romans chapter 13 and says this, Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Very clear what the Lord is saying. Now, when I say pay taxes, that doesn't mean you can't take every legitimate write-off <laughs> that the law allows. I think Pastor Chuck Smith he said, "Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and not a penny more." And I agree. But you may say, "Well, I don't, I don't have the money to pay my taxes. I don't know where the money's going to come from, or maybe I need to call one of those numbers that you see on TV, you know, and uh, you know, cut my IRS bill in half." Listen, why not ask God first for the provision? Seek him. See what he would have you to do. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. But even so, when it comes to our taxes, we need to be honest. We need to be honest in our tax receipts or forms. We need to be honest in paying our taxes to the government. We may not agree with what they do with the money or how it's used, but God so calls us to obey the law and to pay our taxes. And really, to summarize what it means to, to, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, we need to obey the law, pay your taxes, and pray for all those who are in authority. Don't forget to pray for those in authority, which at times, I think, can be difficult when you think about praying for certain politicians. But we need to anyway. Pray that God would open their eyes and turn their hearts towards Him. You know, far too often we expect the government to fix all of our problems. Well, if they just did this, or they did all that. President Ronald Reagan once said this. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. (laughs) Listen, government is not going to solve the problems we're facing in our country right now. I mean, there is a place for the government, we understand that. But more so, we must realize that the only solution to this world is for Jesus Christ to come up and set His kingdom, His government, to which there will be no end. So we wait for him to do that, and as we do, we obey the law, pay taxes, and pray for those who are in authority. Now, point number two, Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's. Now, the thing that is inferred in that statement that is so amazing is the idea that just as Caesar's image was on that coin, and thus belongs to Caesar, God's image is on mankind. And mankind, we belong to God. Every human is made in the image of God. Mankind is unique in all of creation. Man is made in the very image and likeness of God. In fact, Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. It reminds us of God's ownership, which then becomes the basis for all of our human dignity. But unfortunately and sadly, living in the last days in this world we live in, our society has lost the sense of man being made in the image of God. Now, largely, I I think that's because of, of the, you know, teaching of evolution in our schools, but more so because man does not want to acknowledge that there is a God, because if, and we're made in their image, because if they did, then they have to be accountable to the God that made us in his image. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 through 23 says this, this is the New Living Translation. From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God made. They can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. The result was that their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools instead. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God... They worship idols made to look like mere people or birds and animals and snakes. I mean, isn't that the world in which we live in today? We've lost the sense of man being made in the image and likeness of God. And as a result, we see that their minds became dark and confused. Our kids in public school, their minds are becoming dark and confused because of evolution. They are saying, well, we just evolved by accident from an animal and we're just highly developed animals what happens when you think that you evolve from an animal is that you act like an animal. And you have a very low view of man. Because we have such a low view of man in our society, we have the evils of abortion and euthanasia and senseless murders and violence because we've lost sight of being made in the image and likeness of God. What does it mean to have the right view of man? What does it mean really to be made in the image of God? Let me give you a few examples. To be made in the image and likeness of God means we have personality men and women who are like god possess the attributes of personality now you may think that your dog is the most wonderful dog on earth and he has such a great personality because that tail wags and man, he rolls over but it's really not personality it's instinct it just looks like personality because the, the dog may be cute he's a dog and he he does what a dog dog does oh look how cute he's rolling over well, he either wants a treat or he wants a stomach scratch. I mean, it's all instinct, you know. Because he's a dog. Can't do anything else. But, but because of what he is. Man is different. Number two, man has self-awareness. You have personal awareness of self. You have a sense of self. You blush when you are embarrassed. Dogs don't blush. They don't. I've never seen a dog walk up to a fire hydrant and look around to make sure no one was looking. You know? <laughs> Oh man, this is embarrassing. No. Man is is the only creation with with self-awareness. Man can communicate. Number three. Man has the ability to communicate with words. No matter how much it sounds like those dogs are talking back and forth when they're barking all night long, they're just barking and barking and barking. Number four. Man has knowledge. Men and women have the, the, like God, possesses the attributes of knowledge. We can think, we can reason. Man has the ability to reason in the abstract. Man, our our minds are an amazing thing. You can blow your mind just thinking about your mind. I mean, if you could actually look and understand the gray matter, what's called our brain, and you would be amazed. Talk about a supercomputer. I mean, this brain of ours puts any supercomputer to shame. Imagine your brain as a computer hard drive system. How much memory your your system would have? Well, someone kind of figured it out. Paul Reber, professor of psychology at Northwestern University in 2010, estimated that the brain's memory storage capacity is 2.5 petabytes. A petabyte is 1 million gigabytes or 1,000 terabytes. He writes for comparison... If your brain worked like a digital video recorder in a television, 2.5 petabytes would be enough to hold 3 million hours of TV shows. You would have to leave the TV running continuously for more than 300 years to use up all of that storage. Another example, the entire print collection of the U.S. Library of Congress is estimated to be at 10 terabytes. 2.5 petabytes can hold 1,250 billion pages of printed text. To get an idea of a, of a one billion, a billion seconds ago was 1959. A billion minutes ago, Jesus walked the earth. And yet 1,500 billion pages of printed text is the brain's memory storage capacity. And that doesn't even factor in the uh, brain's processing ability. We have just this unlimited storage capacity. You don't even have to plug it in. I mean, it's there. You know, the older you get, you maybe want to update the memory a little bit. I think, <laughs> but it's still there. I tell you, your dog doesn't have that capacity. Human beings also have something animals don't, and that's the ability to enjoy a sunset, to the ability to enjoy beautiful pieces of art. I mean, you don't see a dog like enjoying the sunset. But look at Spot. I mean, he sure enjoys that sunset. Oh, he's jumping up on that chair to get a better view. Oh, isn't that sweet? No, he could care less. We have the ability to enjoy the sunset, to think and to reason. And Feelings are part of those emotions and emotions are part of our personality. Why? Because we've been created in the image and likeness of God. We also have the ability to choose right from wrong. Number five, man has morality. Man who's made in the image of likeness of God has personality and morality, the ability to know right from wrong, which implies freedom and responsibility. Man is a moral being. Even professed atheists, they know right from wrong. God said, be holy because I am holy, so man like God can live in holiness. God is good, so man should be good. God is love, so man should have love. God is holy, man should be holy. We are moral beings that have been given a choice. In the last category, man has spirituality. We as humans exist for communion with God and with his spirit, and that communion is meant to be eternal, everlasting because God is eternal. John 4:24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. These are great attributes of God. Now the problem is, is sin. Man was who, made with all these attributes, personality and, and self-awareness and, and, and uh, communication and knowledge and morality and, and spirituality, has sinned. He's disobeyed God and, and thus the Bible says that the day that you eat thereof of the tree you shall surely die. And man died spiritually, man died morally, man's personality changed. He would die physically and he lost communion and fellowship with God. But even though he's lost all of that, he still bears the image of God. And as you come to Christ, the Bible says, you're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things become new. I shared this at my daughter's wedding uh, a week ago. That we as humans, we can't create something uh, new. We can't make something new. We can make things good as new. But God alone can make things New, and that's what he does for us. You're a new creation in Christ. All things have passed away. All things become new. Now you can go back and you can live your personality pleasing God, a moral life, knowing God, worshiping him because you now belong to him. That's what it means to render to God the things that are God's. Our personality, our self-awareness, our communication, our morality, our knowledge, spiritual, everything belongs to God, and we should reflect the heart of God. Our, our, our personality should reflect the heart of God. Our morality should reflect the heart of God. To be holy, our spirituality all comes from God, from abiding in, a Christ, uh, abiding in Christ, abiding in His Word. And because of that, uh, you know, made in the image and likeness of God, we need to understand that that brings accountability. I want to close with two things that we are accountable for. Number one, we are accountable to people. People, we're accountable to each other. Now, we're told in Genesis 9, verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall be shed. Now, why does it say that? Because life is expendable and cheap, and as we feel it is today? No, it's just the opposite. Because human life is valuable. The verse goes on to say there that, that for the, in the image of God, he made man. Not because it's expendable. I believe the Bible does teach the death penalty. God gave the commandment to be a deterrent to the senseless killings of human beings. The homicides that we see just are a horrendous crime. The recent shootings are a real-life example of how horrible this is. And today you turn on the news and and every day someone is shot or killed or murdered. Blood on blood is in our society today because we have such a low view of man. It's sad that people don't realize our responsibility that we're to have towards each other. Nothing shocks us anymore. Maybe you realize that. And and the more we view movies or TV shows, that shows us this violence and crime. The reality is blurred with fantasy. And you see these young people, especially going out and, and their actions reflect that. God says, if you want to put an end to that, then there needs to be consequences to your actions. And secondly, and most importantly, being made in the image and likeness of God means that we are accountable to God. Accountable to God. As human beings, we're absolutely responsible to God, and the Bible says that someday we will all stand before Him and give an account of this life of ours that we have. Now you hear people say, well, I don't believe in God, and I don't think there's a God, and I will not stand before God. Well, yes, you will. (laughs) doesn't matter what you believe. The books are going to be open. Whoever's name is not found written in the book of life, they will be judged for their works, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. You are accountable to God. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, whose image do we bear? Because it's only through Jesus Christ that God's image can be restored to fallen man. We're told in Ephesians 4.24, we're to put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. How did God restore the fallen image of himself and man? By coming into the world and becoming a man himself. I mean, think about that. Do you know that God making man in His image laid the foundation of God becoming a man in the incarnation? God didn't become a horse or a cat or, or a dog or a monkey, but God became a man. We're told in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God came down as a man to redeem mankind. What a marvelous thing that, that, that God would become a man in order to save us. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was the express image of His person. The Bible says in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now wouldn't that be wonderful to be said of you and me, that we are the, the express image of Jesus Christ? In other words, wife, if you were married to a husband that was just like Jesus, you could look at your husband and say, Wow, he's just like Jesus. Or, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to be married to a wife that had the attributes and the characteristics of Christ? You say, amen, brother, preach it. And and your children to be Christ-like and your neighbors to be Christ-like and your boss when you go to work. Wouldn't it be neat to go around society and see God and people, His goodness, His faithfulness, His holiness, His mercy, His faithfulness, His attributes and people. Listen, God became a man to save sinners so we will be like Him. And when God saves a person, He saves him, the whole person, spirit, soul, and body. God starts with the spirit of man and, 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 and the conscious area of man that is dead and separated and He regenerates man. He makes them new and alive and then God moves to the soul of man and He starts to make man to be more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's that sanctification process and it's a lifelong process. And then thirdly, and praise God for this, He moves to the body. Because praise the Lord, I mean, because the older we get, the more our bodies need help, right? Amen? You get up in the morning and your bodies go, oh, ah, oh. You know, it's a biblical thing to do that, to groan, you know? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in this body we groan earnestly. So when I get up in the morning and I groan, I'm just being biblical, you know? But see, God is going to resurrect man and he's going to glorify you and he's going to glorify me one day and you'll have a new body like his glorious body. Praise God for that. See, when we have a proper understanding of man made in the image and likeness of God, that gives us the ultimate optimism. Because you know that our destiny is in Christ's eternal glory. That the resurrection means that one day we will, we will absolutely be like Him. Not, We are not going to be gods because the finite cannot become infinite and I can never become divine. But it does mean that I will be most like Him that I can be and I will spend an eternity fellowshipping with Him. I like First John 3, 2. We're told, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. Then what a wonderful hope we have for that resurrection! Paul tells us this in First Corinthians fifteen forty nine that we have been born the image we which have been born the image of the earthly we will bear the image image excuse me of the heavenly I like that in fact I like the whole I'm going to close with this First Corinthians fifteen fifty one through fifty four says this Behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. I, for one, cannot wait for that day and I believe it's very soon. When Jesus held up that coin... And look at that, that hypocritical crowd. He asked them the question, whose image is on that coin? And they said, Caesar is. You know, we hold up a, a, a dollar bill or our bills, and whose image is on that, those bills? Dead presidents are on that, those bills. But the bigger question for you and for me is whose image do you bear? Is it God's? Then render to God the things that are God's. Give your life to Him this morning. If you're this morning and you've never surrendered your heart and life to him, as soon as service is over, the elders, we can be up front, would love to pray with you and give you a Bible and to know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in each one of our hearts and each one of our lives. Lord, that you're transforming us and you're making us more and more into your image and your likeness. Lord, help us to be that clay, Lord. As your word says, you are the potter, we are the clay. Lord, help us to be moldable, bendable, Lord. Help us to hear your word and make those changes in our lives that would help us to draw closer to you, Lord. That our personalities would be one that glorifies you, honors you. Lord, that our morality would be one that that honors you and glorifies you. Lord, that our, our ability to communicate, Lord, that we would communicate your gospel. Lord, our self-awareness, that we would be aware of you always with us, Lord, and that people, when they look at us, they would see that we represent you and we're living to please you. Father, we recognize we can't do that on our own. We need your Holy Spirit in our life to accomplish that. And so, Lord, we ask for an empowering of your Spirit to live this life in this day and this age, a life glorifying to you. Help us, Lord, Lord, as we look in this government, help us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Lord. Help us to not get caught up in the in political, Lord, but to have our eyes focused on you, the eternal one. Lord, when you set up your government upon this earth, a government of righteousness and truth, Lord, we long for that day. We praise you for this time this morning. And Lord, again, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to give their heart and life to you, Lord, would you touch their heart today? Help them to see without you there is no peace for them. There is no hope. But with you, Lord, you give them hope and peace and eternity and so much. So, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that that doesn't know you that would give their life to you this morning. Thank you for our time, Lord, together. Thank you for Henry and, and faith being here, sharing and worship with us, Lord. We praise you for our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.